All right, Father, if you want to go ahead and start us off, <laughs> all right, that'd everybody. be great. That sounds great. Well, it's so good to have you all here, and I'll tell you what, since it's 6 o'clock, I think our clocks in here are like five, minute fat, five minutes fast, so let's just go ahead and uh, start with praying the Angelus here at 6. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, and she conceived by the Holy Spirit, Hail Mary, full, full of, of grace, grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to thy word. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And pray for us, O most holy Mother of God, that we be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech thee, O Lord, thy grace into our hearts, that we, to whom the incarnation of Christ thy Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection, through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, fantastic. It's so good to see everybody here. We have a few more of our wonderful guests coming in, like Sam Tuluri. And I believe, Michael's going to tell me in a second here, I think we're already live on Facebook Live and uh, recording this. And so the nice thing is we have some wonderful guests here in studio in uh, our wonderful Boyd Gymnasium. But also, we're recording this, uh, so if anybody's listening at a later date, besides April the 11th, 2019, thanks for tuning in as well. Yeah, so we're recording live, obviously on Facebook Live, for our viewers who are sitting in the comfort of their own homes. Um, and then we will have our audio recording that we'll also put on the SoundCloud account. SoundCloud account. Um, so you can listen to it on MP3s as well. Um, so for those of you who are uh, watching at home and have not participated, or those of you who are here that have not participated in this before, um, really this is just a uh, question and answer session. Father and I are just going to go through some pre-asked questions that we had um, and answer these. And this is our fourth one of these? I think so. Done? It's the second time we've done this where we have a live studio audience. And uh, we've also recorded, I think, yeah, two in my office as well. Two or three in the office. And if you want to listen to any of those past recordings, uh, our SoundCloud account as well, Sacred Heart, um, Salisbury Catholic, soundcloud.salisburycatholic.com um, is our username for that. And so, um, yeah. So do you want to just dive right into the questions and get started? Real quick, if you can let everybody know how to submit oh, a question as well. Thank you, Father. No um, so those of you who are here, you'll see you have little table tents in front of you. Um, nowadays, with the wonderful use of the internet and our smartphones, um, we have the ability to ask questions uh, digitally. They'll pop up on my screen, and I'll have them right here. You can ask them anonymously, um, and you can really ask as many as you want, and they'll keep populating over here. If you're at home, and want to ask questions, uh, you simply go to Slido, S-L-I-D-O, Slido.com, and our event code is S-H-C-C, for Sacred Heart Catholic Church, and then you can ask questions. So if you're here and asking questions, if you're at home and asking questions, they're going to pop up on my screen. We'll get to as many as we can, and usually we have 
too many to get through in our question and answer session live, and then we do a recording from the comfort of Father's office. And so we do answer all the questions that are asked. We might just not get to them today. So whether you're at home or here, again, that's Slido, S-L-I-D-O dot com, and the code is S-H-C-C. And for anyone who are here that don't have smartphones, I do have paper and pen over here. You're free to come up and write something down as well on this podium and just slide it to me on the table and we'll get that as well. And like I said, we'll answer as many as we can and if we don't get to them all, we'll do a recording and get to the rest. Sounds good. Do you think we need to do an introduction of ourselves? Probably a small one for maybe our viewers at home. <laughs> sure, that sounds good. Uh, so my name, if you don't know, is Michael Becker. I'm the director of operations here at Sacred Heart, which base basically means I do everything the Father tells me to. Um, or as I also say, I'm the parochial vicar, and I just don't get to do the sacraments. Uh, so to kind of help compare to what my job description actually is. And then obviously, this is our wonderful pastor, Father John Eckert. You have been here for how many years now? It'll be five years in July. Five years in July. Which is pretty amazing. And interesting fact about Father, today is the anniversary of his baptism. Yes, and to celebrate, I baptized a little girl this morning after the school mass, which is really a really nice way to celebrate the 37th anniversary of my own baptism. And yes, I've just given my age. So uh, it, was, it was lovely, and um, yeah, so... It's great to be here at Sacred Heart, and thank you all for coming out uh, this evening as well. And please help yourself to any of these snacks and drinks over at the side there. So thanks for being here. And if you don't help yourself out, I'm just going to take it all home to my <laughs> wife. So, or stick it in the office for us to all share. So enjoy what you can, and, but it won't go to waste, I promise. Um, all right, well, we have uh, about 10 questions, a dozen questions that have already been submitted earlier than the event. And have you seen these questions already? I actually have. I'm okay. not going to lie. Now, I have not seen a single question yet, so this is all completely new to me. And oh. I've looked them over. I haven't really studied anything, so this okay. is still pretty cold turkey for both of us. Okay. Um, so first question, how do you know when God is calling you to your vocation? And then there's another question that is very similar to this. What, are the difference, what is the difference between all the vocations for women specifically? So how do you know when somebody's calling you to your vocation and what vocations are there for women specifically? Sure. Well, I think um, when it comes to how we're being called, you know, I mean, there, you know, obviously if you look um, in Scripture, it's like I'm thinking about, like, uh, uh, is it Samuel being called and hearing through the night, having his name heard, and he gets up and runs to is it Eli several different times. I mean, sometimes God speaks in a little bit more explicit, like, using language sort of way. But um, I would say for most of us, uh, you know, it's speaking through the circumstances and people in our life, um, through our prayers, uh, through different tugs at our heart. Um, just to use my, myself as an analogy because, or as an example, um, you know, the priesthood is something I always thought about, um, especially when I was serving as a young man from about the third grade on thought about it all through high school, went on a lot of discernment retreats, even visited um, a couple of seminaries when I was in high school. Uh, but at the time when I was in high school, although I liked the idea of the priesthood, the seminary kind of scared me a bit. Just at 18, I wasn't ready for the 6 a.m. wake-up call, which now isn't really that bad. But at the time, it seemed awfully rough. And uh, curfew and all that. Just at 18, I wasn't ready. But towards the end of college, the more I thought about what, you know, 
what is going to ultimately be, you know, what's, what's that fulfillment? What am I called to? And I could tell as I approached the end of college that I had to give seminary a try. I wasn't positive yet. And it's one of those things that, you know, God kind of leads you, you know, gradually along. There's some guys who enter into seminary and are there for a while um, and end up leaving after not too long of a time. Uh, but I, I mean, just about all the young men I knew from seminary who did that and left, it was a good experience for them and it made them better husbands and fathers. Uh, because ultimately, I mean, a lot of the same things that will make you a good priest are going to make you a good husband and father. But anyway, it's just, you know, our Lord speaking through uh, the people around us, speaking through our prayer, uh, and just being open uh, to whatever you know, that, that tug at our heart that he places there. The one other thing I would say, uh, something that one of my Jesuit buddies said one time, it's always kind of stuck with me, is he said that ultimately a lot of times it's where, you know, like your vocation sort of arises where the deepest longings of your heart meet the greatest needs of the world. And I could just, you know, feel it, that like the longing in my heart to proclaim the gospel, to be with people from birth to death, you know, and, and to be proclaiming, Jesus Christ in the midst of all of that, it was just nothing else really seemed to make sense. Um, so did you want to add anything as far as vocational discernment, especially in discerning the vocation of marriage? Yeah, I was going to say, I can actually speak to this question too, because I also am living out my vocation, um, being married. So in high school, I really thought that I was going to become a priest. Um, the Bishop of Raleigh, Bishop Burbage at the time, um, I think had his crosshairs on my back as a potential priest. He always remembered my name. Uh, I was always very surprised when he remembered who I was, and I always think that that's part of it. Um, but I was very tempted to going to seminary, and I actually did a seminary visit to St. Charles Borromeo in Philadelphia, where the Raleigh seminarians go. Um, and I remember walking through the halls of the seminary and talking to the vocations director, uh, now Bishop uh, Schlesinger in Atlanta, and I said, I don't know. I just don't feel like this is going to be my home for the next four years. Like, I loved the place. I loved all the seminarians. I loved learning about the faith. But I just felt that this wasn't what I was called to do at that point. Um, so I ended up going to college at Belmont Abbey. And while I was at Belmont Abbey, there were times where I was very called to become a priest. There was one time I actually met with the abbot and said, give me the paperwork right now. I'm ready to sign up to go to seminary. And I was all gung-ho. Six months later, I met my now wife, um, so that kind of disappeared rather quickly. Um, so, but discerning, it's, it's, a tricky, it's a tricky thing. And it comes down to uh, listening. It comes down to listening to um, our Lord. I think in prayer, we kind of fall into the habit of speaking a lot. We are always communicating with God. And as I tell my students in middle school, think about a relationship. If you spoke the whole time, would that be a very good relationship? No, you have to have a dialogue. You have to go back and forth. So it's the same with prayer. You have to take some time and actually listen to what God is saying. And that's a hard thing to do because we always pray, Lord, please give me a sign. You know, we want some big sign across the sky. You know, we want the writing. We want the miraculous thing to happen. Um, and ultimately, that's not normally how God works. You know, the scripture says God speaks to us in the silence. So we have to take the time to be silent to listen, and to see what God is calling us to. And that first thought, you know, especially teaching middle schoolers, when you say, how many of you think we'll be a priest or a religious? Almost nobody raises their hand. 
because to them that life seems kind of odd and not what the world is teaching us. So the time to think, to listen, to just be open to God's will, and it's a hard thing to do ultimately. Oh, sure. And that's where, you know, I was talking before about listening to, you know, what others say, uh, paying attention during our day-to-day lives, and that's where the prayer is so crucial, I think, is to take just what's going on throughout the day and to take that to prayer uh, is an important thing and to let our Lord unpack essentially it's like what he's been saying to you through the various circumstances in your life so to do that examine of the day not just the examination of conscience but also like where did you feel fulfilled today I mean was it you know and this is the thing too I think and we'll get to this with the question about vocational options so to speak for women it's like both of us are called to either fatherhood or motherhood you know it's like that that's going to be essential but in what way is it in that you know biological sense as a literal physical mother a physical father or also the spiritual motherhood in the religious life the spiritual fatherhood that I take on as the pastor uh, of a parish or that you know a male you know religious would take on I mean there's aspects of both of those. Like I said, it's the same sort of gifts a lot of the times that make you successful, so to speak, or faithful or just fulfilled in both vocations. And our Lord speaks to us in countless ways throughout the day. Like you said, it's important that we stop and listen um, in the midst of the craziness of our lives and just let him unpack what's going on. And he'll let us know but it does take patience, and, and also, obviously, we've got this pesky thing in there called free will, which can be uh, difficult, too, is, I mean, he allows us to make the choice. It's not like a caveman thing where he hits us over the head and drags us to our vocation. I mean, he presents it, and we have the opportunity to say yes or no. And ultimately, I've always been told it comes down to love. How do you love the best, Yeah. right? Um, because no matter what it is, as Father said, the family aspect and the loving aspect is in all the vocations. So how do you love the best? And that's not necessarily our choice. It's how God created us to love, and that connects to what vocation he created us for. One of my religious sister friends said that she once said to God in prayer, like, sure, I'll get married if you'll let me have 15 of them. Like, she said that her heart is just too big for just one spouse. Like, she has to, you know, be there for, you know, so many. And so... You know, to see that spiritual motherhood in, in women's religious. Um, and obviously, there's a lot of, you know, different aspects then or charisms out there. Uh, you know, I have some very close friends uh, that are religious sisters, and I pray for a whole big list of religious sisters every day. As we all know, I mean, we've had two different groups here within the last six months, the Dominican Sisters of Mary, Mother of the Eucharist, Dominican Sisters of the Primary Charism of Teaching, and then we had sisters from Fatima, Portugal, the Alianza de Santa Maria. And their charism is spreading the message of Fatima, and they take a fourth vow of unity. Both groups, women religious, both have charisms that are a little bit different. Both engage in spiritual motherhood and in some, slight, you know, some different ways. Also, some good friends that are Dominican sisters of the Perpetual Rosary. They're always praying for the church. Uh, the Sister Servants of the Eternal Word in uh, Birmingham, Alabama. Their charism to lead retreats. And they're very uh, focused on 
the spirituality of the Franciscan order and the Dominican order and trying to bring the two together, which is pretty fascinating, actually. Uh, you got the poor Claires of Perpetual Adoration that used to be in Charlotte and are now actually back in Alabama as well. Um, you know, we have the Daughters of the Virgin Mother who are in Charlotte and have a specific attention to Miravien for caring for the seminarians um, and priests of the diocese. We have uh, Benedictine sisters in the diocese uh, whose work, just like the Benedictines of Belmont Abbey, their you know, work in prayer. We have the Sisters of Mercy um, there in Belmont, uh, whose primary focus was education for years. We have Sister Joan Pearson, who's a sister of St. Joseph, very much dedicated to Hispanic ministry. And so all of these different women religious that are focused on various charisms and at the heart of that all is spiritual motherhood, kind of lived out in different ways, but all of it uh, is rooted in the love of and being a bride of Christ. Uh, and so it's, it's beautiful to see the many ways that can be lived out. Just like with priesthood, I'm a diocesan priest. My main charism is to be in a parish, to be doing what I'm doing now. Like I said, it's almost like from the womb to the tomb. I mean, that's so, supposed to be the focus, baptized little... Irene Trujillo this morning. Um, last Thursday, I had a funeral for Patricia Hagner. I mean, it's like, and then everything in between, we're preparing the kids for confirmation. We've got first communions coming up. We've got the school still going, you know, full mode until graduation comes in June. And it's like, there's always so many different things happening. And then my best friend I grew up with is a Jesuit priest. He's just about to be the principal of a high school in Kansas City. Um, so different vocations, he's very much focused on specifically the education, and I've got sort of like the, for lack of a better term, like the general practitioner role in a parish. So, you know, it's like both of them focused on that, like I said, for the women's spiritual motherhood, us spiritual fatherhood, but sort of lived out in some different charisms. And I know the um, women that I have known that have discerned that they were called to religious life I always thought, oh great, you're going to go join a religious order like tomorrow. But in the end, just discerning that you're called to religious life is like the first half of the battle. Because then you have to figure out which order you're being called to. Yeah. And I know some women, that's actually the harder call to answer than just what is my vocation. Because there's so many different religious orders, and as Father said, there's so many different charisms for each religious order that sometimes that is very hard to discern of where am I being called and how do I use my gifts and how do I love the best even within religious life itself. And I really like that too, the way you put that, you know, how do I love the best? Because, you know, someone who's called to say the missionaries of charity, Mother Teresa's order, you know, is going to have some different gifts than say, like I said, the Dominican Sisters and Mary Mother of the Eucharist who are predominantly in schools, they're teaching. I mean, both, like I said, devoted to Christ, devoted to their prayer life, devoted to the sacraments. It's just lived out in a different way. And so to answer that question, how do I love the best? That's a good way of asking or answering that question. And it's very much in tune to who the saints are, too. Mm -hmm. uh, I forget who it was, but they said, if you really want to be boring, be a sinner. Yeah. There's only so many ways you can sin. Just ask somebody who sits in confession all the time. And I was talking to my uh, seventh graders about this, you know, one person goes in, I lied, I cheated, I steal, I didn't honor my father and mother. They walk out, the next person comes in, I lied, I cheated, I steal, I didn't honor my parents. Next person comes in. And literally, I imagine, I've never sat in confession, 
But I imagine that is pretty monotonous, you know? But if you want to be unique, and you want to be creative, and you want to be remembered for what you did, become a saint. Because every single saint that we look at loved differently, and every single saint that we learn about ultimately got to heaven for a different way that they learned to love, mm -hmm. or they were called to love. And if you look at the difference between, essentially, the devil and God, it's like, the devil's not creative. The devil just corrupts, right? The devil just ruins things, where God is infinitely creative. And so to continue to strive to follow our Lord, that's exciting. There's good things that happen. I mean, out of self-sacrifice and love comes good things. When you study like the totalitarian dictators of the 20th century, at the end of the day, they're all kind of the same. They rob people of their human dignity. They're obsessed with power. Um, you know, they just march over people for some cause that will end up destroying themselves and those that are following them. It's all the same garbage is the word that I'll use here. I mean, he can say many worse things. But if you look at the saints, there's an incredible diversity in the way that they even respond to that kind of oppression. I mean, you think about Maximilian Kolbe, you know, St. Maximilian Kolbe responding to the overarching, you know, uh, dignity-stealing, uh, well, attempts to steal the dignity of those in the concentration camp. What does he do? He stands up, takes the place of another uh, man condemned to die, lives, you know, lives for a long time until they finally uh, kill him, but shows that great love even in the midst of the hell that was a concentration camp. And yeah, I mean, when it comes to confession, the boring part is the sin, but what, what is so exciting is to see God's recreation, let's say, and you know, like someone repenting, coming back, and to see them rise up and leave from that is just incredibly powerful. Or it's, yeah, I mean, the sin, the sin is just, it gets old and it's boring pretty fast. It's not like I'm in there listening to all these juicy secrets. I mean, it's, it's, it's all the same stuff. Um, frankly, it's like, that's the part you're like, oh, like, don't do that to yourself. You know, it's just, it's sad and you don't want people to be stuck there. But the exciting thing is, is you get a new beginning and you get this new and exciting way to, to keep moving on, so. All right, I think we spent 25 minutes on the first question. Exactly. <laughs> you can tell this, though, as an important question to ask. Absolutely. So a quick question that I want to answer uh, that we got from one of our listeners is, will there be a quiz on this at the end? <laughs> if you'd like us to write a quiz, we can. We should. We should put out some sort of a quiz on Facebook. We should. maybe, Or at uh, least a survey. What did you think of the Q&A? Father, if you're willing to write that, I'll post it. So, like, I didn't like Michael's tie. No, <laughs> well, thanks, Father. I don't like your collar. I'm kidding. I like your tie just fine. I asked my wife this morning when I got dressed, is this Facebook Live worthy? <laughs> I don't know if this is a good color scheme to go with. Does it match the room that we're going to be speaking in? I don't know. She said yes, so if you don't like my tie, blame my wife. And I wore the same shirt I wore yesterday. And wife, if you are watching, you are very welcome. <laughs> um, the next question actually goes along well with sin and the devil, as we just kind of segued into. The phrase, lead us not into temptation in the Our Father, has always puzzled me. God does not lead us into temptation. We do it ourselves, don't we? Question mark? Um, I don't know about the we do it ourselves part. And the one thing I would say sort of in response to that is, scripturally speaking, right after the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan, it says that he was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted for 40 days. So there is that element. Um, the other thing I would say, I mean, and I don't think it's that our Lord 
you know, himself is tempting us. However, if you think back to the book of Job, right, um, you know, you have the devil at the first part of it, he's been patrolling the earth, and God says, you know, did you see my servant Job? And he says, ah, he's only that way because everything's going so good for him. Fine, take all of this stuff away, you know, and he does, and Job still doesn't curse him. He's like, ah, skin for skin. If he doesn't have his health, he'll curse you to, his fa- to your face. Job still doesn't do it. Um, you know, we live in a fallen world. There's a lot of temptation around us. And Jesus even says, you know, to pray that you don't be put to the test. Um, he says to Simon Peter, you know, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, right? Now I'm just paraphrasing. I think I'm getting this right. Um, is it mysterious? Yes. I don't understand the way in which our Heavenly Father would necessarily like lead us into temptation. However, I think just to be alive in this world, we're going to face temptation. You know, our Lord in the garden, you know, saying like, Father, you know, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Obviously, there's the permissive will of our Heavenly Father to let these things happen. And I wouldn't say that we lead ourselves into temptation. Um, in the act of contrition, you know, at the end, it's, you know, um, and, uh, and, uh, and it prompts to stay, you know, away from the near occasion of sin. We shouldn't, like, try to tempt ourselves. I mean, and really, it's like we need to grow in our own self-control. If you have a problem with, let's just say, you know, you can't, like, kind of only have a small amount of Oreos. Not a good idea to just keep a full package around all the time, right? Um, we need to stay away from the near occasion of sin. We need to be able to kind of self-regulate. But at the same time, like, as we're sort of tested, I mean, and even in the Psalms, and it talks about, you know, like, or like gold tested by fire. We go through testing. We go through temptation in this life. Is it our Lord tempting us like the devil? Well, no. But at the same time, in his permissive will, I mean, we grow as we say no to sin throughout our lives and say yes to growing in virtue. Um, and we fall and, you know, and, and thank God we have the ongoing grace, um, the, the gift of the sacrament of confession to say, I'm sorry when we do fall in the midst of temptation. But, you know, I think in some ways it's like, yeah, we're like gold tested by fire in the midst of temptation. Is that line in the Our Father sort of mysterious? Yes. But I don't, I mean, I, it's, it's been the perennial translation, I mean, from the beginning. Uh, since our Lord gave us those words, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it wrong. What do you think? Yeah, I think that... Temptation is, is a tricky thing because in some ways I think temptation is closely related to suffering. And Christ does lead us in some ways into suffering. He led us through the cross. Um, actually, there was a really great video that Father and I were just talking about before we started. Um, it was a talk given by Jim Caviezel, who played Christ in uh, Mel Gibson's The Passion. He gave this talk at the Focus Student Leadership Summit. Um, I don't remember where it was held. I think Indianapolis. Um, Indianapolis, I think that was right. Um, And some people are saying this is the best Catholic talk or testimony of the 21st century. It was absolutely um, amazing. And actually, if you're watching Facebook right now and you're on Facebook Live, scroll down a little bit and you'll actually see a link to the video. We posted it on our Facebook page. Um, And something that he said in there is that no servant is greater than his master. So look at who our Lord and Savior and you know, master is Christ, Jesus Christ, who carried this cross, died on the cross for our sins, 
arguably suffered the greatest suffering that a human being can possibly suffer. And so if that is what our master, Christ, our Lord and Savior, did for us, what more is he going to essentially ask of us? So I think, you know, being led by the Spirit to be tempted, suffering and temptation and fighting the devil actually is how we participate in salvation. I mean, we're in Lent, right? Mm -hmm. uh, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. Those are all ways that we sacrifice, the all ways that we are ultimately tempted to not do these things by the devil, to turn away from God. So in some ways, you know, it's also like the agony of the garden. Lord, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but thine be done. I mean, that was a big cup to bear for Christ. And sometimes Christ asks us to bear temptations and sufferings for the glory of his kingdom. Um, so yeah, I think it is mysterious, but that's sort of how I've always understood it. No, I think it's really good. And I would say too, I mean, it's almost going back to your vocational comment about how do I love? Well, to love at all involves temptation because of the fact that love inherently has self-sacrifice. And there's, you know, always the temptation to be selfish, to turn our back, to not engage, to not be there. But I mean, to love, I mean, we, we, we enter into self-sacrifice. Love isn't just, um, I have nice feelings about you. It's like, okay, that's great. But, you know, when the rubber hits the road, I mean, true love is sacrificing your own will much of the time for the sake of the beloved. So, yeah, I mean, there's going to be that temptation to not go forward with that, to not, not do the thing that is, you know, calling for sacrifice. Uh, and so there's going to be some temptation involved in that. Uh, but to say no, to say yes to the love, to move forward, I mean, that's, that's where true happiness lies. But really, that involves picking up your cross daily and following Christ. Yeah, I have a almost three-year-old and a two-month-old uh, little girl at home and I'm trying to make my late night dirty diaper changes as that loving the beloved not sure. only my beloved wife but you Your know beloved my beloved daughter. savior and my beloved daughter and trying to make that a sacrificial act um, it's pretty small but uh, when you have to get up at 2 a.m. to change a poopy diaper it doesn't feel too small um, so yeah, doing things like that, those little ways I think is very important. Very good. Awesome. Next question that we have, um, while there is a commandment about honoring parents, there's nothing regarding parents being kind and attentive to their children. Double question mark. Um, I don't know that's true. I mean, cause it has, there's, uh, when you get into the Shema, it has to, it talks about you know, uh, hero Israel, the Lord is your God, the Lord alone, shall love him with all your heart, your mind, your soul, drill this into your children. I mean, so like you're, you're supposed to teach that to them all the time, to give them the knowledge of God. I mean, to hand on what you've been given. And also, even if it's not simply in the commandments, when you get into the letters of St. Paul, I mean, he talks about you know, fathers, and I'm totally paraphrasing. I don't remember exactly what he says. So essentially, it's like, don't be too hard on your children. Like, you're not, and don't be too hard, but it's like, don't pester your children. Mm -hmm. um, and so, no, I mean, there, there's the, the obvious, like, the, the give and take and the, the parental hand. I mean, you have to hand on 
the gift of the faith. And I would say, too, I mean, that's we've been having a lot of discussions lately about our faith formation program. And the fact of the matter is, it's like it, it essentially has to be enshrined in the family because, I mean, you, you hold on to the gifts that you've been given by your family. I mean, I see some wonderful examples of sitting right in front of me right now of families that have handed on the faith to their children. And when that's taken seriously by the parents and lived out, it, it is such an incredible gift that then lives on. Um, do we have the exact way, uh, you know, some specific blueprint on the absolute way to do that? Well, for example, you just said, you know, you get up at 2 a.m. to change Juliana's poopy diapers. We've just used the word poopy for the third time now. Um, but, you know, it's not going to tell us to do that specifically in Scripture, but it's all contained in that, you know, self-sacrificing love of the parent for the, for the child. Um, but even, I mean, obviously, the physical well-being of her is very important. However, you're handing on the faith to her, as you promised to do at her baptism, which I was very honored to get to do not that long ago. Um, you know, that has eternal consequences. And the command to do that, going back to the Old Testament, you know, you look ahead to the New, handing on the faith is probably the most important thing that you can do. Because to have that absolute truth in an uncertain world, to give them, you know, hope in the midst of fallenness, uh, to have that to look forward to, to live out in this life at the heart of their life, I can't think of anything better that you could give them. And it's very much contained in Scripture that we need to be doing that and handing that on. Yeah, I was actually just joking with Father uh, before we started talking. He said, I'm going to go grab my Bible and my catechism. And I said, no, don't grab it. We'll just boast that we don't need it. <laughs> and now that this question came up, actually at the back of my Bible, I wrote down the verses that I found about parents and children. Obviously, living out my vocation, that's something that interests me a little bit more specifically. So if I had my Bible, I could flip to the back and tell you all the different verses that have to do with parents and children, but I don't have it. So God just made me very humble right now. <laughs> um, but one of my favorite verses that I do remember is this says, uh, many children is like a quiver full of arrows that are to be aimed and shot in the correct direction, right? Because children in our youth are very powerful, but they need that direction and order from the parents to kind of point them and aim them in the right direction. Um, so yeah, I think in several places, and I think that is in St. Paul, um, I think one or two of the verses I'm thinking of are in uh, letter to Timothy. Yeah, um, I think in, the, in, the, in his letter to the Ephesians, I want to say, because um, that has to do, I think, with the wife on her, you know. Yes, and there's a part about children yeah. in there too. So yeah, definitely glance through your Bibles, glance through, you know, uh, especially the New Testament, and you can definitely find a couple verses on... Um, you know, parents respecting their children as well. Maybe you can post in the show notes afterwards the list of the list of the verses. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, so yes, I will definitely post it in the show notes. Um, and anything else that we talk about that's a reference, I'll post in the show notes on uh, SoundCloud because I have that capability. Mm -hmm. um, all right, next question. And if you don't mind, Father, do you mind if I answer the next question first and then I pass it over to you? Please. I know we kind of got this thing going. I didn't want to break the groove we got going here. Um, the next question is, do you think it is good for teens to be in a relationship? Why or why not? So first of all, there would be two things that I would ask. What age of a teen are we talking about? Are we talking 18, 19? 
or are we talking 13, 14? Because that is a very, very large difference. Mm -hmm. One is a freshman in high school, the other one is a freshman in college. Um, but usually I, when I talk to middle schoolers especially, but also high school students, I kind of phrase these, this question to them about uh, dating um, or being in a relationship, really specifically in high school. I say, usually start by asking, what is the earliest age that you want to be married? Like what is the absolute earliest you want to be married? And most of them say right outside of college, usually. 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 So what's that, 20, 22, 22 24. 24, somewhere in that range. And then I ask, how long is the longest amount of time that you want to be dating somebody seriously before you get married? And they usually say, eh, four-ish years. Maybe five if they are extending it a little bit more. So if you do the backwards reasoning, all of a sudden they've just proved that they don't want to be in a, in a relationship until end of high school, early college, right? Now, that doesn't normally happen in practice, but if we truly ex accept that dating or being in a relationship is to help you discern your vocation, as we've kind of already talked about, then when are you actually going to be able to really start living out your vocation and how long do you want to be in that relationship to discern that? Um, and that's, that's kind of how I pose it, but then you can also make the argument, well, priests go to seminary for six to eight years, and most people that are in a dating relationship are in relationships for like one or two. So maybe we should be just dating longer, but that usually is not how the world views things, and that usually doesn't end well. Um, yeah. But that example of kind of rewinding and looking at it from the reverse order, um, so that would be kind of my argument, that I'm not a huge fan of relationships in high school, uh, late high school, definitely, you know, early college. I see that as more actually discerning your vocation. That's a really good answer. I like that. The thing is, I, say, I would say with the comparing it to seminary, um, that I think isn't just the straight up dating. Uh, Cause you're talking about like, you know, formation for the vocation. So in some ways, I mean, if you wanted to kind of like make the dating analogy, um, it's like, you know, when I was kind of discerning in college and thinking, is this what I should be doing? In some ways, it was almost like I was kind of dating my vocation, so to speak. But once I entered seminary, that was, that was pretty, pretty well set. I mean, that is, that is dedicated time. I'm focused on this. It's, you know, the next six years. Like, this is, we're, we're on the way. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think most marriage prep, it'd probably be a good idea to say, okay, you guys are engaged now, it's wonderful, six more years. Um, right now it's six months, and for some that just is way too long. But I would say that it's important that we have good marriage preparation, which we strive for here. We need to keep working on it, striving to always make it better. But, um, you know, to help couples to um, address any of the possible issues, you know, like basically to talk about all the fundamental issues, talk about what the church teaches about marriage, like what you are doing together, the fact that you're helping each other to get to heaven, that you're bringing new life into the world, that you're faithful to one another, till death do you part, um, that are you ready for that? You know, is this, is this what, you're, what you're entering into? Because if not, you shouldn't be getting married, you know, and, and to talk about all of these uh, different big issues before uh, they actually enter into marriage. But, uh, but no, that's, I've never heard it Put that way. That's a really good good point. About I think I'm going to patent it, Father, and you maybe should. write a book about it. You should. But, you know, 
couple uh, students in here that I've taught, I know, have definitely heard this before, I'm but sure. uh, I, I pull it out logic. every once in a while. No, it's good. It's good logic. And the thing is, too, it's like you have to ask yourself, okay, what, what is the point? What's going on here? And just, just once again, it's not a very popular virtue out there in the wider culture, but chastity is a very important thing. And I'd say, you know, to make sure that um, <laughs> you're being really careful about the near occasion of sin, you know, and so uh, to not put yourself in that occasion. Go to dances, have fun, go in groups, those sort of things. And obviously there's going to be some people you're attracted to, and especially as you get towards those later ages, you start, you know, looking towards marriage. Great, enjoy those times. But once again, to make sure that uh, you're helping to set yourself up for success with chastity as well. Yeah, and the other thing I would say um, that I always encourage teens is you have to be able to form a friendship first. Yeah. You have to know how to be friends with the opposite sex first. Because as C.S. Lewis talks about with friendship, friendship is when you are looking towards a common end and you are running towards that common end, whether it be a hobby, whether it be your faith, whether it be a mutual activity you're doing together. And then at some point, what's going to happen in that friendship is two people are going to, instead of facing a common end, are going to turn towards each other and face one another. So if you're already running towards that common goal together, you already have the strong relationship built around something um, that then is that foundation for when you turn towards one another. Um, so yeah, as Father said, groups and activity events and just getting to know one another I think is incredibly important. Um, and my, my wife and I in college were really good friends for our her freshman, my sophomore year of college before we started dating. So we really got to know each other on that level first before dating was even ever a thought for our uh, friendship. Sounds good. Moving on to the next question, it relates to the one that we just answered. Um, what are your thoughts on teen pregnancy? Do you agree or disagree? Um, what's there to agree or disagree on? Um, um, what I, I, I did look at this one beforehand, I'm not going to lie. Okay. And again, this kind of comes back to the first question. What do you just describe as a teen? I mean, 18, 19-year-olds could well, be married. Well, I put it this way. Okay, so here's the thing. So, yeah, if, if they're, of course, I mean, if you have a married 18, 19-year-old, great. Yeah, of course. Um, and once again, as I said, I highly recommend chastity at, at all stages the appropriate use of the gift of sexuality, which is a gift that's reserved for marriage for an important reason. I mean, because we're talking about, you know, the giving of yourself to another person and to have the safeguard of the sacrament of marriage to help with that is such an important thing. And so to, you know, not engage, you know, in sexual intercourse until marriage is for everybody's best interest. But, as we know, it does happen um, quite regularly these days that people do engage in sex outside of marriage. So, let's say that happens and, you know, a baby is conceived and the person is in their teens. Well, okay, then the baby is here. You have the baby. You know, I mean, uh, life begins at conception. And let's just say, yeah, to fall into the trap of unchastity, to have sex outside of marriage. It's not a good thing, but you don't make something better by, frankly, committing a worse sin. I mean, you know, abortion is a terrible thing. Um, and so, you know, 
regardless, you know, like, to have the baby, whether that means having the baby, putting the baby up for adoption, having the baby, raising the baby yourself. I mean, it depends on the circumstances of what's going on, you know, uh, your family, uh, your, your um, I don't know what to call them, the other, the other person, because it takes two to tango, the other person's uh, family, you know, all these different things, but never for an instant entertaining uh, the option, so to speak, that regrettably, terribly, horribly is available to us today to kill the child should never come in. I mean, to know that that is a life and your, you know, your child. Um, and I would just say to anybody like in that kind of a situation, don't do something that you will regret for the rest of your life um, where you're not going to regret having the child and having an adoption. Um, there's a lot of hurt and pain and difficulty out there in the world today. And um, we're certainly not better off as a nation, as humankind, because abortion is so readily available. Um, and if you've ever found yourself in that kind of a situation, or even, regrettably, if that's ever happened to you, if you ever had an abortion, reach out, get healing. You know, as I said before about confession, um, to hear that in the confessional, it's a devastating, a sad thing, but the beautiful thing is, is God's mercy is powerful, and you can get healing and help and reach out for that. Um, so I guess, you know, what do I think of teen pregnancy? It's like, well, okay, if we find ourselves in that situation, then we move forward, always looking towards the good that, you know, this is a life. God loves this child. Um, let's find a way to get them taken care of, and there are tons of sources of support and help and just goodness out there to help you, don't ever feel completely alone in that sort of a circumstance. Yeah, and ultimately you'll never regret practicing the virtue of chastity to begin with. Yeah. Um, it may be hard in the moment, but this is an important thing to remember, and I think this is one of the great gifts of the vow of, of celibacy that we take. And I know it's sort of under attack, and I know we're in the midst of the sex abuse scandal in the church, and all, but anyway celibacy lived out and lived out well a it is a gift from god i'm grateful for it and b i think it shows to our hypersexualized culture that to say no to that aspect of our life it doesn't kill you like if you say no to um you know to engaging in you know that particular aspect of our life to say no to your sexual drive is it hard sure of course it is you're not going to die. You know, it's not like saying no to food indefinitely. Okay, eventually you will starve to death. But you can say no to your sexual drive. You're going to live. And in fact, if there's a strong temptation, it will pass. I mean, these things happen. Don't put yourself in the near occasion of sin. And that's what I was kind of getting at before with the dating. Yeah, it's a good thing to date. And you know what? It's probably okay to hold hands and maybe even kiss. But make sure that you're not setting yourself up for, you know, the near occasion of sin. As I've heard before, if you don't want to go to Albuquerque, don't get on the bus. You know, it's like if you don't want to go down the road of unchastity, don't put yourself in a circumstance where it may happen. However, does that happen in our society a lot? Yes. But at the same time, so if, if you do have sex outside of marriage, if you do get pregnant, okay, let's deal with that. Let's make sure that we, you know, don't do something worse now that this has happened. Um, to take care of the child, to take care, frankly, of yourself. There's so many people out there who regret things that they've done in the past who will tell you over and over again, 
don't fall into the same trap. And I would just point you towards those you know, same sources of help and the glories of the great virtue of chastity. Yeah, and going down the side road just a little bit more as well, obviously, even within marriage, we are called to chastity mm-hmm. to a certain extent. Um, there's this wonderful thing in the Catholic Church uh, called natural family planning, NFP, that is so important for a strong marriage. And within that um, natural family planning, there are times when you need to abstain from uh, sex, even with your spouse. And the world also says, well, why? They're married. Even you say yourself that it's okay during marriage. Like, yes, but we have to remember about, you know, being responsible parents and bringing children into this world at the appropriate time. Um, And as Pope Francis usually is quoted, Catholics aren't called to be rabbits, right? If you remember that, you can research that. That was a fun one. The the Um, one thing that I would say with that is uh, Humani Vitae, the document from St. Paul VI in 1968, he talks about, you know, the natural regulation of birth and to make sure that you know, the reasons that you decide make sense, you know, that ultimately, I mean, because remember, I mean, there's never a point, I think, that any of us come to where it's like, oh, I've got plenty of money for everything for, I mean, there's always going to be some question marks, but to make sure that, you know, things are approached with a generous heart, um, and, and also, uh, you know, with the, you know, once again, we go back to prayer, praying about it with your spouse, and it's a beautiful thing about natural family planning is it encourages a lot of communication between the husband and the wife. Um, that you're in this together and you don't fall into the trap of treating one another like an object. So to, so to be in that communication together, um, to talk about those things, and also, you know, once again, to be open to life. Are there times, like, even for, you know, for the, the health of the spouse, you know, to make sure that, you know, okay, you need some... <laughs> some recovery time, you know, to make sure, but at the same time to be open to what God is calling you to. Of course, and um, it's all about that balance, right? And as the rabbit like example, things, right? Yeah. It's about that mean between the two extremes, right? I know sometimes we can get, you know, the, oh, those large Catholic families, you know, the 12, 13, 14 kids. That's not necessarily what every single family is called to. So finding that balance of, you know, having children with appropriate time when you're able to support them, when it, being responsible parents, but also not making excuses for yourself, um, as Father was talking about, and actually using, you know, that communication within the marriage and that reason and actually talking about these things, and that's what natural family planning is really all about, is to foster that communication and make sure both the husband and the wife are on the same page when it comes to children. Praying together, staying together, it's important. Of course. All right. We will keep moving down the list. What is the most important part of Mass? I thought the Eucharist, but have had others say the assembly. So the Eucharist, I'm assuming the assembly meaning the congregation or coming together in communal prayer at the Mass. Um, I mean, I... I don't even know if I would say, you know, what is the most important part of the Mass. I mean, the Mass is an integrated whole, um, you know, between the liturgy of the Word and the liturgy of the Eucharist, uh, and, you know, Christ giving us of himself, the reliving, um, the remembering, reliving of the Paschal mystery, the 
passion, death, and resurrection of Christ, um, sacramentally present at the Mass. And so I would say it, it all comes together and is all of a piece. And so, I don't know, I would hesitate to say what's the most important. I would just say that the Mass itself is... Uh, the greatest prayer of the church and that's what we offer and we don't really like dissect it up into into different parts that it's all of a piece yeah i totally agree with you it's the whole liturgy itself Mm -hmm. um because we can find christ is present in so many different ways obviously in the real presence of the eucharist but also the word was made flesh so in the reading of the word Mm -hmm. um he is present in all of us right we were made in the image and likeness of god so when you yeah, you just can't dissect it because God is present in so many different ways that... Um, and you bring all of that together for the holy sacrifice of the Mass. Yeah, you can't say one is necessarily more important than the other. I don't think so. Yeah, I would just say the you know, it's all of a piece. Wonderful. What is the symbolism of incense when you use that Mass? There's a few that... Uh, One is like our prayers uh, being offered up to God. You know, it's like the smoke rises up. Um, and I think it even said, I forget which one of the Psalms, but our prayers like incense rising up to the altar of God. The other thing uh, with the incense is sort of like the cloud. Um, and when we go to the Mass, uh, you know, it, there's a mysterious element to it. Uh, it is other. I mean, what's going on in the altar? The bread and wine presented becoming, you know, really, truly present. Jesus Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity. I mean, it is a mystery, and so the, the cloud of incense um, sort of represents the mysterious element of what is happening at the Mass. I mean, once again, like like saying about not dissecting it, uh, you know, when we go in there, and there, there, there is an element of, of mystery that's there. Yes, we offer, we offer our prayers up. They go up to God, but everything that's going on um, in the midst of the Mass like Jesus Christ is mysteriously present to us. And in the same way that it's like if someone tells you, oh, I've got the Trinity exactly figured out, here it is. Well, no, I mean, you know, God is greater than we are. I mean, he, it's like we never fully comprehend all of the, everything that's going on in the midst of that. We will continue to strive to explain. doesn't mean that we can't know anything, but at the same time, there is a mysterious element in the Mass. I think the, the incense points to that as well. So an interesting side question, just for my own curiosity, yes. not necessarily the question by our viewers. Um, are there different types of incense, and what is your favorite type of incense that we have or that you've had before? There are a lot of different types of incense. Um, I think my favorite one that we have right now uh, is one that I bought uh, when I went to the Holy Land back in 2016. Um, and uh, there were two different ones I got. One was myrrh, which is really pretty awesome. The other one is a rose one from that same place, which is like less than 100 yards from the Holy Sepulchre, which is where Jesus was crucified. And I think that's probably my favorite. Um, there's a few others that we have, to be honest with you, I don't remember the names of them. I'm going to say the red one, but I don't know. <laughs> but I don't know what it's called. I never think to look at, uh, at the actual brand. But, um, but yeah, it's like some... Are stronger as some of our servers who are here will tell you some I mean there's some that honestly it's not an issue with like coughing like I, but there are some that will make you 
cough a little bit. Yeah, some are a little smokier, some have a better mm -hmm. smell. And just so you all know as well, incense is made of a variety of different things. It Usually is. it's either some sort of, sometimes very small particles of wood, mm -hmm. sometimes very small particles of sap or resin, mm -hmm. sometimes very- like Flowers, like florally things. Yeah, floral yeah. petters, uh, almost like a, sometimes it's almost like a potpourri um, for the incense. So uh, when you say incense, for There's a lot the, of different styles. The untrained person, they're like, oh, incense. But for people that are behind the scenes, yeah. incense is a pr pretty big conversation that can be had. I know our servers have a favorite one that they affectionately call fruity pebbles because of the way that it looks. And it does kind of look like fruity pebbles. So, so just a little glimpse behind the scenes of mass. <laughs> Pull back the curtain. Literally, we have a curtain. We do. That's um, <laughs> next question. Um, what would you recommend as an effective way to do a good examination of conscience? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, well, A, I would say one of the most effective ways to make a good examination of conscience, do it daily. Before you go to bed, um, or I will be honest, like I, I try to do my examination of conscience when I pray night prayer each night, but I have become more of a morning person than a night person. So if I try to do a substantial examination of conscience, I'm kind of nodding and falling asleep. So a lot of times it's in my morning prayer that I'm kind of looking back on the day prior. And the reason I say to try to do it daily is because then you start to no notice more patterns. Like, why have I been in such a bad mood for the last five, six days, you know, weeks, months, years? Like, why, you know, it's like you can... You can pick up on patterns and figure out like, okay, let's get to the source of what's going on here. So that to try to do it with frequency is important. I mean, obviously you can go through the Ten Commandments um, to go through uh, the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus says and says, you know, like, you have heard it said, thou shalt not kill, but I tell you, if you hate anyone in your heart. So like to go through that section of Matthew 5 uh, where he talks about that, that's helpful. One of my favorite things though and I think I've talked about this before um, in homilies at, at, uh, here at Mass. I've talked about it in other places. But one of the best things I've heard is if you take its 1 Corinthians 13, I think it's verses 4 to 7. If you've ever been to a wedding, you've heard this before. But it's, you know, it's where St. Paul talks about love. You know, love is patient. Love is kind. Uh, love does not brood over injuries. It's not boastful. You know, so I'm paraphrasing. But... If you take out the word love and put in the name of Jesus Christ, it works. I mean, he is love. He's patient. He is kind. He's not boastful. He doesn't brood over injuries. Now, the trick is, can you take out the name of Jesus and put in your own name? Because the thing is, if you remember, like in the confidior at the beginning of Mass, you know, um, what I've done, what I've failed to do, my thoughts and my words, or yeah, my thoughts, my words, what I've done, what I've failed to do. I mean, there's... There's a lot of ways it's like our life isn't just about not killing people. It's not just about not committing grave sins. We're called to take the gifts we've been given and put them into action. Once again, we just keep going back to what you said about vocation. How are you called to love? And if you're going through your life and you're not loving, if you're not engaging in that, What's wrong? Like, why not? You know, like, why are you not being patient? How can you be more patient? Like, okay, so if I put my name in there, John Eckert is kind. Is that true? What about those times today when I wasn't kind, when I made fun of Michael's tie? Why am I upset about upset with him and making fun of his tie? Like, what's, what's going on in these regards? So to look at the day-to-day -day life and to figure out, am I actually living out the call to love? 
And that 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 to 7 is a nice little list of this is what love is. This is how love is in action. Um, how do you do that? Are you living up to that or are you just kind of going through the motions? And so I think that is a really good examination of conscience to look at. Um, because ultimately, you know, we need to be striving to be like Christ. You know, God is love. Here's a definition, so to speak, of love from St. Paul. How am I doing that? How am I living up to that? Um, so that would be a really good one. And like I said, to do that with frequency, then if you go to confession with frequency, my rule of thumb, once again, uh, every month is great, every two months is good, but try not to go longer than three months. Why? Because, you know, I can remember what I've been doing since January, but it's hard to remember what I was doing six months ago in what, October. Um, really hard to remember what I was doing a year ago in April last year. Uh, so to, to try to do with some frequency to receive that grace, uh, that's why we have confessions essentially every day but Sunday, is because it's such a good thing. And the more we're able to not only get rid of mortal sin, yeah, we got to do that, stay away from mortal sin, you know, keep it away like the plague. But at the same time, we're called to more than just avoidance of mortal sin. We're called to the greatness of sanctity, and that comes from living out love. And I think that 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 7 is a good way to go about an examination of conscience. And I think the importance of a good examination of conscience, and I think we can all get caught in this trap where we're always thinking of our sins and what mm -hmm. we failed on, which is important to think about. But what about what you succeeded on? True. Who are you as a human being and what are your gifts? Have you ever tried this challenge, you know, sit down and write, you know, 20 things that you're bad at, but then sit down and write 20 things that you're good at. I guarantee you, you will come up with 20 things that you're bad at almost in half the time as 20 things that you're good at. And sometimes looking at yourself and saying, how did I succeed today? What did I do to give glory to God today? How did I spread the gospel today? Sometimes that's harder to pinpoint things. So I think an examination of conscience is not just how did I fail, but it's also how did I succeed and how do I continue to grow in that area of my life as well. Yeah, I heard a story about an elderly sister one time, it was very saintly, and she said something like, I'm not really worried about hell because I know I'm not going there, but I am worried about like taking grace for granted and like missing opportunities for growth. And that's a, you know, that's a, that's a good point of saying, you know, like, what am I good at? And I would say, what could potentially be the missed opportunities? You know, like God has put you in this circumstance with these people at this time. What are you doing to live out your baptismal call? What are you doing to live out where God is calling you right now? Whether you're, you know, set in your vocation, whether you're not and you're discerning, but you're there right now. Um, I think the fact that, like, St. Jacinta and St. Francisco, canonized saints, not even teenagers yet, shows us that it's like we're called to holiness today, not just with some vocation down the road. It's important. We should be discerning. We should be looking at it. But no matter what our state in life, we're called the holiness today. And the beautiful thing is, so we've been talking about with, you know, just this call to love, um, to, to engage in that. Is there suffering? Yes. Is there temptation? Yes. But the glory of it is a wonderful thing. And you don't want to miss out on all of the opportunities to live that out today.
So. And I use this example all the time. I call it the Spider-Man problem, right? <laughs> Uncle Ben asks, you know, says, with great power comes great responsibility. What are the great powers that Christ gave us? What are the great gifts that God gave us? And we have so much more responsibility to live those out mm -hmm. and use those gifts to evangelize and spread the gospel. So making sure that we're looking at both sides of our lives. Yeah, that's really good. Next question. In the last 30 years, it's become more common for many to raise their hands during the Lord's Prayer at Mass. I haven't seen this in any liturgy guides. What do you recommend? So what do you suggest is the posture of the people during the Lord's Prayer at Mass? Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think the Missal says one way or another, because usually it just says what the priest is to do, and I think there are times where it says, like, the people kneel or stand, something like along those lines, I think. Um, but I don't think it actually says what to do with your hands. The thing that I would say is, you know, essentially what the custom of the place is where you are, um, which I would say the norm, especially here, is probably with your hands folded at your pew. Um, but, you know, I, I would say, and don't get me wrong, I know with some folks, it's like, especially if you're praying in private, maybe it's part of your devotion to raise your hands in prayer. Um, and especially when you're on your own and it's private, that's fine. It makes sense. But I think when you're in the midst of the common prayer of the church, when you're with everyone else, on a certain level to kind of follow the local custom of what's going on. For example, um, I'm sure I could probably get in trouble for this one, but let's just say you're at a place where everybody reaches out and holds hands, right? Um, I'd say in some ways it's probably more distracting to like, like pull back and not do it. And don't get me wrong, I know it doesn't say to do that, and maybe it's something to say talk to the pastor about or something like that. But really it's like the common, you know, I think the norm is to fold your hands. But I'd say that sort of like going with the norm as long as it's not disrespectful um, is an important thing to do. Yeah, and that's usually my rule of thumb. Um, I taught um, totus tuus for two summers, and so for totus tuus you do um, essentially vacation Bible schools at different parishes through the course of the summer. And we went to seven parishes my first summer and more or less seven different parishes the next summer. Just within 14 parishes in the diocese, at that point of the Lord's Prayer, every church kind of has a dis different custom. Some it's kind of a 50-50 mix. Some, everyone holds hands. They reach across the aisle. I wouldn't necessarily suggest that. That's yeah. a little distracting. But yeah, just jumping in with what the people are doing. Um, now, Father, correct me if I'm wrong. The, the only posture that I know kind of can get a little questionable is when you hold out your hands like this and not necessarily holding hands because I, I know that's a posture that the priests do at mm -hmm. mass and I forget what that posture it's called is called. called the Oran's position. The Oran's position and from what I understand the Oran's position is usually reserved for the priest. Yeah, as far as I know that's that's the way I understand it um, and I don't think the missal says one way or another but if I'm and you'd have to talk to someone like Father Noah Carter, who's got his uh, advanced degree in liturgy. So I don't know the history of the Oran's position, but I would I think it has something to do with the fact that you are, like I'm leading in prayer. I'm offering up the prayers of the people as the priest. And so I go into, you know, that position. And so it's reserved to the celebrant, you know, the main celebrant, the priest at the liturgy. So, you know, once again, I would say, you know, to recognize that you're in the common space with a lot of other people and 
that, especially you got people next to you, not to stick out your hands. Because frankly, it's like, it's kind of off-putting and distracting if you start doing that. I'll tell you, just on a priestly mode of things, if you ever watch, like for example, next week we have the Chrism Mass down at the cathedral. And you know, we'll have just about all the priests of the diocese. So at one point during the concelebration of the Mass, all of us will go into the sanctuary around the bishop for the Eucharistic prayer. And there are parts during the prayer that all of us are supposed to do the Oran's position. And I will tell you, I don't take the normal, I mean, I don't have like a wide stance on my Oran's position. But when you're with like a hundred other guys in a tight space, you, you sort of adapt to the space. It would be, I think, liturgically rude to do one of these, you know, as I'm crammed in there. It's like you kind of adjust to the space where you are and the people that are there. Once again, I don't mean in some kind of like a crazy, oh, just do what the Romans do. No, you know, like within reason, but at the same time, I think to be aware of where you are and to, you know, um, I don't know, sort of adapt to that. And like I said, you're praying at home or you come to the church, you're by yourself, I don't see any problem with lifting up your hands in prayer. But I think when you're, when you're in a group at Sunday Mass, it's just like this. I mean, recognizing the fact that going to Sunday Mass is going to be different than privately going over and praying in the church right now, although choir practice is going on. Let's say it's 9 o'clock at night, choir's done, it's quiet in the church. Okay, then you go, you have quiet meditative time. You can't expect the same sort of quiet meditative time at the 1030 Mass when you have a lot of families and kids there. There's going to be some ambient noise. And I don't even mean, you know, just like, let's say it's like a four or five-year-old going nuts. Okay, yeah, they should probably be calming down and take them out to the bed. But if you got a baby crying, it's not really a bad sound. I mean, it's the sound of the fact that we have some life there. Um, and so is that the same as when you're quietly, meditatively praying at 9 o'clock? No, but it's not the same sort of time. This is our sort of like communal liturgical everybody's together and so there's going to be some differences always respectful you know like i'm i'm not saying like it should be like a free-for-all zoo with the kids like swinging from the chandeliers no but at the same time realize it's not going to be the same sort of like quiet personal meditative prayer as it is when you go to mass on sunday and if you're at eight o'clock mass here at sacred heart that's probably my child who's <laughs> screaming uh one of the two um so you can come join me in the back of the church if you want. That, that would be great. Especially if she has a poopy diaper. Yes. <laughs> you know, when you have a two-year-old in the house, your language just adapts to the two-year-old's so. language. And then it spreads to the church, apparently. Apparently. So. <laughs> All right. We've got two questions left. Um, we're scheduled to go till 8, so if more people ask questions, we'll keep on going. If we don't get any more questions, we'll wrap up after the next two. We are flexible. So, um, Or you at home, if you have more questions to ask. Uh, slido.com s-l-i-d-o.com our code is s-h-c-c for Sacred Heart Catholic Church so get more questions in if you'd like if not, that's fine with us too uh, next question that we have how should you approach a friend who hasn't stopped going to Mass completely so if I understand this correctly the friend's kind of on the fence not so sure about this anymore might be coming sometimes might be coming you know, once a month how would you kind of step up and be that good friend and encourage them to get back into the habit of going weekly? That's yeah, tough. Um, because I think nowadays, I mean, people can be so easily offended. One thing I would say to keep in mind, and I know, because I mean, it's, 
It's difficult. It's difficult whenever you're going to bring up some sort of fraternal correction, right? Um, when you're going to be telling someone, I've noticed this is going on, you know, what's happening, what can we do? And I was, you know, know, know your friend, know the way to approach him, things like that. However, I'd say this is an important principle to keep in mind. What's the ultimate goal here? You want what's best for them, right? And what is better than, you know, being in a state of grace, going to Mass every Sunday, you know, having a good prayer life? Are there challenges to that? Of course there are. I mean, life happens, things get difficult. And I think sometimes it's like life is like moving through the desert. And I think the mistake that a lot of people make is like, you know, our prayer life is like carrying a bunch of heavy water. It's like, oh, I don't need this anymore. I'll throw it to the side. Well, then you're going to die. You know, it's like it's, it makes things harder when you're not praying, when you're not going to Mass, when you're staying away from our Lord. So to remember the fact that ultimately, why are you bringing this up? Because you want what's best for them. And to even say to them, look, I've noticed you haven't been there for a while, okay? I'm not saying this to tell you that I'm better than you and you're terrible, but I'm saying it because I care about you and I want what's best for you. You know, and just to say, if there's some issue you're having, let me know. We can talk about it. Um, we can get on sledo.com and send it to Father John and have him answer it in, a, you know, in the gymnasium in front of everybody else. Or you could come to and ask him in person. That's fine. Uh, you know, like to, to ask a question. And I know right now, too, because I've heard people say it and, it, and it breaks my heart and it's sad. There are people who you know, have kind of broken away from the church, have stopped coming because of everything that's happening, like with the sex abuse scandal, right? And just the difficulties with like, with a lot of what the bishops have done and things like that. And one of the best lines I've heard, I've heard on the Matt Frad show a lot and Pines of the Aquinas, where he says, you don't leave Jesus because of Judas, or you don't leave Peter because of Judas. And he even said, you don't leave Peter because of Peter, right? Because even St. Peter made a lot of mistakes along the way. But God shows those apostles. He left us the gift of the church. In fact, Pope Benedict XVI, or Pope Emeritus, put out a 6,000-word essay. I think it just, I mean, I just saw it today. Just read it for the first time. But basically about the fact that, yes, there are weeds among the wheat. There are bad fish among the good that are collected. But that doesn't mean that the church isn't holy. What has to happen? We have to be more dedicated to Jesus Christ. And so the answer to the problem of Judas isn't to run away and to stay away from Christ. It's to stay closer to him. In the midst of a fallen world, we need the sacraments. We need that help. And so to, to express that to someone and say, look, whatever the difficulties are, whatever the challenges, I'm here to help you. You know, pray for them. Pray ahead of time when you're going to talk to someone about something like this too. And honestly, I'm a huge believer in praying to your guardian angel and praying to theirs. Anytime you're going to go into a difficult conversation, something you are not looking forward to, that you know is going to be a challenge, but you know you're doing this for the greater glory of God and the salvation of souls, you ask your guardian angel for help and their guardian angel for help too, because ultimately what they strive to do, help us to get to heaven. Why are you bringing this up? Because you want them to get to heaven. I mean, what we're doing over there, the reason that we have Mass every day, the reason we have confessions every day but Sunday, is because we're striving to help people to become saints, to get to heaven. And so, to participate in that, to strive to help bring someone to Christ, 
it's a really good thing. Do it with humility. Um, you know, we had on the confirmation retreat, the gospel was Jesus telling the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, you know, where the Pharisee goes up, he's speaking to himself about how great he is, and I'm, at least I'm not even like this tax collector. And the tax collector beats his breast, doesn't even raise his eyes to God, and says, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the thing I was thinking about in particular with that is the people that are like the greatest help in the midst of sort of like the difficulty between the Pharisee and the tax collector. Because the Pharisee says, I'm glad I'm not like the rest of humanity. I don't commit adultery. I don't kill. I don't steal. Great. We're not supposed to kill, steal, or commit adultery. That's wonderful. But we don't stay away from those practices. We don't engage in love to show everybody how great we are, right? Um, And so the big thing is, I think, it's the saints that help us so much. They don't do any of those things, but it's not so that they can be up on a pedestal and we can tell them how great they are. No. What do they want? They want us to be in heaven with them. They're interceding for us always. They want us to be on fire with love and for the faith. And so ask for your patron saint's help as well and this person's patron saint. You know, if you're both confirmed, you know their patron saint, you know, you know, ask your own for help too. They're in heaven having, you know, made it through the struggle, made it through the temptations, they're there. Get the help of the heavenly host to help the people around us, you know, to get on towards heaven. And then, of course, you know, keep removing the beam from your own eye. But, as Jesus said, then help your neighbor with the splinter in theirs. We do have to help them. It's difficult, especially in this day and age, because it's like our sort of capital sin in the wider culture is, don't you judge me. Um, But at the same time, parents do this for their kids. Why? They don't tell them not to eat a can of frosting for dinner because they don't love them, right? It may be what they want tonight, but you tell them, no, because I don't want you to be sick. And I don't want you to get, you know, all of the terrible side effects that come from eating a can of frosting. And the child will think that you're terrible and you're judging them and you hate them and you just want their life to be horrible. But nevertheless, you know that this is in their best interest and so you're the bad guy for a while because you want them to be healthy and happy. Well, even more important than not having an upset stomach is moving on towards salvation. And there's no greater help than the ordinary means of salvation, which is the sacraments, which predominantly is the source and summit of our faith, the Eucharist and the Mass. So don't be afraid. As difficult as it is, ask for help, ask for humility, keep up those prayers, but have the courage to say something. Yeah, and that's what I was really going to emphasize is that in our culture, everyone thinks, don't judge me. I mean, my, some of my own friends have fallen into that. And we're called to love the sinner and hate the sin. Yeah. I mean, you're allowed to call out and say, no, what you did was not right. Uh, skipping mass is not a good thing. You're allowed to call that out for what it is. Um, and so many people in our world say, well, you don't love me. You'd let me do what I want if you loved me. No. And Father made that great example of the frosting, right? So... I think that brotherly correction, that fraternal correction within, you know, friends is incredibly important. Um, whether you're 16 years old, 18 years old, 40, 50, 60 years old, being able to call out one another and say, I want something better for you, and I know that maybe you don't see it, but I see it, and I want to help you as best as I can. Um, so, yeah. Now, going on to our next question, it kind of relates to this. Um, specifically with confession. Would, is there any specific advice that you might give for um, someone who, stopped, who hasn't gone to confession in years, um, especially if they don't feel um, comfortable talking to a priest 
or going in and saying, bless me, Father, I have sinned. It's been five years since my last confession. I mean, that can be kind of embarrassing to say. Sure. Um, yeah, that one, that one gets a little bit tougher in some ways because, you know, with Mass, it's kind of obvious when someone's not showing up at Mass, right? But when it comes to confession... Um, you might not know, might have, you know, been a while, you might not know all the, all the specifics, and that's obviously a little bit more intimate. What I would say is, is maybe walk someone through, like, what do you think is going to happen? Like, do you really think the Father is just going to yell at you, right? I mean, it's like, have you ever talked to Father? I mean, I, I don't think that, like, especially if you're here, I don't consider myself to be overly intimidating. Maybe I'm wrong. But you're not going to have the priest yelling at you. And I would say if there's one thing that was emphasized to us in seminary, it was that. I mean, we're happy to have people coming back, you know, happy to rejoice. I mean, and Christ talks about it up and down in the sacraments. I mean, you think about the three big parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then the prodigal son. What Jesus is telling us, there's more joy in heaven over one repentant sinner than over 99 righteous it's a joy when someone comes back. It's a joy when this happens. And to tell them, especially of your own relief, when you've been going to confession, and just say, like, look, I, and, and I'll be honest, I mean, I, I struggle in a way when I go in, even though I, I strive to go every couple weeks. Uh, but still, I mean, you're going in there to admit what you've done wrong. It's embarrassing. And I mean, and especially, like, with me, I mean, I'm going to guys, like, it's really hard. I very rarely went to Father Rossi because typically like half the sins were about him. But nevertheless, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, there's, there's always going to be a little bit of self-consciousness because you know that you've done wrong. And it's hard for us to admit when we've done something wrong. That's not easy. But nevertheless, to know that there's hope coming out on the other side, to know that it's that participation in the resurrection, repenting of our sins, getting to essentially hear, like Christ said to the woman caught in adultery this, this weekend, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. I mean, to have that and to be able to let that go, and especially, my God, I mean, especially if it's been five years and whatever caused that in the first place and that kind of disconnect, to get to leave that behind, to get to come on back and to have things reconciled and to get back up again, as long as we got breath in our lungs and our hearts are beating, we've got a hope, we've got a chance. And so to share that, and to share the, the joy and the relief and the peace that comes from that, you know, post-confession time, it's awesome. Is it a hurdle? Is it difficult? To, yeah, and especially if it's been a long time. I get it. I think the hardest part probably is just stepping over the threshold. But once you've done that and once you've gone through that, it's awesome. It's such a, such a huge gift and to be able to leave that stuff behind. So I would say sometimes, too, the, the ability to share like personal example and belief in the power and the joy and the gift of the sacrament, that probably goes a long way too. Yeah, and you can always invite people to go to confession. I mean, you don't necessarily need to call them out of how long it's been, yeah. but always invite, and you might be surprised when somebody's going to take up your invitation. And as I told my um, RCAA class the other day, nobody likes going to confession. You, I mean, father tries to go... Every, what you say, a couple weeks? Every couple weeks. I mean, I get the jitters and the butterflies every single time I even think about going to confession. But that is the direct attack of the devil. That is the last thing that he wants you to do, 
is go and ask forgiveness for your sins. And you bet that he's going to make you not want to go every single time. But as we talked about with that suffering and those temptations to not go to confession, that's all the more reason to go to confession Mm -hmm. and say, you know, get behind me, Satan. I'm going to do what Christ asked me to do, and I'm going to get my sins forgiven. And there's nothing that you can do to stop me um, because that's probably one of the greatest gifts that you can um, receive, you know, probably second to receiving the Most Holy Eucharist. Um, I was going to say another good Pope Francis quote was he said that, you know, God never tires of giving us his mercy. It's us who tire of asking for it. And, you know, I just, I think just that (laughs) drive to keep going is so important. Don't worry about, oh, what is Father going to think of me? He's not going to think anything of you. It's, it's okay because the gift of the seal of confession is real. We're not allowed to change our opinion of someone because they've come to confession. And to be honest with you, if anything is going to change, it's just respect and happiness because you were there. I mean, that's the big thing is you want people to be free. Um, I know I've mentioned it a few times. We have confession every day except Sunday because it's so important, because it's so good. Um, I do it for, a, I mean, the longest time is Wednesday nights after the 515 Mass just until I'm done, which right now works out to be around 8, 830. Uh, but we have adoration going on. Just come out and go. Even if it's been a long time, it's okay. And if you're terrified of the confessional itself, then maybe set up an appointment. <laughs> or if you're office. terrified of Father Eckert, yeah, there are more else. priests in the world than just him. Um, exactly. I find priests all the time to go to confession to because I don't normally like to go to my boss. Um, so and I, it's a good idea just to go to somebody else. I, I hunt down other priests all the time, and it's great. And you actually have the right as a Catholic to go to confession. So if you ask a priest to go to confession and it's not an inconvenience to him or it's not an inappropriate time, he almost has to say yes because you have an actual right as a Catholic to have your confession heard if it's an okay time to hear a confession. Two minutes before Mass not is a good probably time. not a good time. But Father will probably tell you, hey, if you wait till after Mass and wait till I get through my little receiving line, um, that's usually what I like to call it, it kind of is, um, then I'll meet you at the confessional, right? So you can really go whenever you need to in a lot of ways. I just say when I'm done telling people goodbye. Receiving line. <laughs> we got it, Father. We know what it is. All right, what's next? Yes, you may ask a question. Wait, say it one more time. So the question that we have, yeah, the question we have from the audience right here, which is a very good question, is why do we pray for the dead after they've already deceased? Um, and, that, and that is a very good question that a lot of people ask. So basically that, that relates to purgatory, right? So some people, if you die, um, say in a state of grace, but still, you know, marred by sin, things you're still attached to, there's still purification that needs to happen. So we believe in purgatory, right? And so we pray for people who have passed away in purgatory that, you know, that our prayers assist and help them on their way through purification, on their way towards heaven. Um, And so we continue to offer up, and you'll notice, like most masses uh, that we offer are for someone who has passed away. Um, The man today, the mass is for Ruben Pineda Martinez, I believe. Um, who had passed away. And so we offer up that great prayer of the Mass for him, for his 
purification, for that continue, you know, moving on towards heaven. And so we assist the dead with our prayers. Um, even though they have died, we still assist them with our prayers while we're here on earth. Because once, once we have passed away, we don't really have the power to do that for ourselves anymore. But we're, we get to pray for the dead. And we do that in a very specific way um, with increased focus during the month of November. That's a month, you know, we have All Souls Day on the 2nd, which we pray for the faithful departed. Um, and we, in particular, kind of focus on that very directly during November. So... Yeah, and I always pose the question, you know, because our Protestant brothers and sisters do not believe in purgatory. Um, so some uh, Protestant traditions um, say we don't pray for the dead because those in heaven don't need our prayers. They're already within the beatific vision. Our prayers don't necessarily do anything for them. They actually are praying for us. Those in hell are destined for all eternity to be in hell. And so our prayers can't really do anything for them. So I always challenge our Protestant brothers and sisters, do you pray for the dead? And most of them say yes. And then I said, well, why? If heaven and hell are the only two options. So just by us praying for those who have deceased, in some ways, we're saying there has to be a third location a soul can be, which would be purgatory, mm -hmm. right? Being purged of our sins, being cleansed of um, all our earthly temptations and our earthly attachments to be 100% totally able to embrace God and only God. Um, and so we pray for them that they may be able to let go of whatever those sins or temptations are. A uh, really great depiction of this um, is C.S. Lewis's, um, oh shoot, I was just going to say it and I blinked on it. Um, help me out, Father. The Last Battle? No, The Great Divorce. Oh, The Great Divorce. The yeah, Great Divorce, right. right? If you haven't read that text before, thanks, Father. You were no help at all. I can remember my own I'm book impressed. title. I'm impressed you pulled it up. That's one of the best CSS books there is, too. It's one it. of the most amazing books, and it's fairly short. I think the first time I read it, I read it in one sitting, um, which is saying a lot. I'm a very slow reader. Um, and so I highly suggest reading that because it really paints an interesting picture, you know, of those who are struggling and battling to let go of their earthly temp uh, earthly longings and temptations to be able to go to heaven, or of course, uh, Dante's Purgatorio. Um, the Inferno always gets a lot of praise, but nobody really remembers that. By the way, there's two more. Really, it was one big, long poem that then they split up for us because you know nobody wants to read that long of a book. Um, so Purgatorio is great as well. one sitting, not like The Great Divorce. No, that is yeah. not one sitting of a book, definitely. No. That takes a very long time to dissect, but still worth your time um, if you pick it up. Yeah, definitely. It's a great book, even though I couldn't remember it off the top of my head. What, The Great Divorce? Yeah, it, it's one of my no, favorites. No, it is one of my favorites as well. Uh, and I actually probably need to read it again. Um, that might be a good Lenten practice for next year. Um, all right, last question that we have. Um, any advice for young adults struggling with the crisis in the church? Um, or any advice for college students on how to stay close to Christ? So obviously... You know, those young adult years and those college years are some of the hardest times to keep your faith. Um, and there's all of these statistics about those years are the years where if you're going to leave your faith, that's probably, that's when it's probably going to happen. Actually, statistics are showing that people are leaving their faith earlier and earlier. Even, you know, junior, senior year of high school, some people are already out the door and we've kind of lost them. Um, but specifically for young adults and college students, what would you say about the crisis in the church? And what would you say about how to stay uh, close to Christ? Well, when it comes to 
the crisis in the church, I think some of what I had said earlier, you know, still applies. And the fact that, you know, you don't leave Jesus because of Judas. Um, that, yeah, I mean, there's, there's some horrible things that have happened, some horrible elements uh, in the church that have been there. And yet at the same time, uh, to look at what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ actually teaches, what he's actually taught what actually goes on in the sacraments, um, that the church has managed to stand for 2,000 years, to look at the deepest questions and longings of the human heart, and even to say, like, you know, the big questions that humanity has about, you know, why are we here? Why is there something and not nothing? Why, why does love exist? You know, like, what, why isn't it just that might makes right that the powerful are in charge and that's it and we're just done with it. Like, why is any of this still continuing to go on? Well, divinely, it's, I mean, Jesus Christ is in our midst. I mean, and, and he is the answer, I think, to the question that is human existence. Um, and he's given us the church and given us this, you know, um, amazing way to get to him through these ordinary means of salvation. And if you look back, you know, to the very origin of our faith, the incarnation, the way that our Lord came into this world via the Annunciation, the Nativity, the events of his public life, his passion, death, and resurrection, his gift to us of the Eucharist. I mean, all of these things are so powerful and so real and so good and ultimately lead us towards peace. Are there some, there's like, four really bad words that come to mind. Are there some very terrible people who have taken advantage of their position within the church? Yes. How do we have to handle them as folks not in charge of deciding their punishment? I think with pity, ultimately, because when you think about, you know, I mean, what is our Lord going to say to them? You know, it's like, you know, we talk about missed opportunities. This isn't just missed opportunities. This is like <laughs> turning people away and ruining things. It's horrible, and I hate it. it. There's there's so much destruction and terrible. But you know, when your mother is under attack, when what you love is under attack, what do you do? You stand up and you take care of her, and you step up, and you love more, and you do what you're called to do, and you call people back towards the purity and the goodness and everything that our faith stands for. And so, to someone say going off to college, I'd say, look. Don't be afraid of the questions about the faith. Don't be afraid of the false dichotomy of faith versus science. Like, don't just accept things on their face value of just, oh, the church is against science. Baloney. The church is not against science. Look at the history of the university itself, of the study of science, who's come up with so many different things. And don't just accept at face value um, so many assumptions about human sexuality. Uh, evolution, everything's, and I'm not like saying there is no evolution. What I'm saying is, you know, nevertheless, I think sometimes there are conclusions drawn from scientific studies from the past that assume there is no God when there's no evidence at all for that. So it's funny, but I feel like so often we get accused in the faith of, oh, they don't want you to question anything. What are we doing right now? It's a question and answer thing, you know, like. The thing I love about the faith is it's like, if you have any questions, here's this bad boy right here. You know, it's like we've got the catechism of the Catholic Church. If you want to know 
Like, you know, if, and especially right now, it's like we get attacked for being anti-science. Frankly, what's anti-science? The overarching secular culture. To say that life does not begin at conception, that's not scientific. To say that, you know, oh, like just, you know, with this whole like, well, love answers everything. If a man wants to marry a man, fine. No, scientifically, that makes no sense. Just like the transgender movement. It just, there's so many things that like scientifically, that all that just gets thrown out the window. And why? Like, and, and so what I would say to someone going off to college is fine. Engage in those arguments, but actually look into evidence, look into scientific argument, and look into the fact that, you know, philosophy needs to be studied, that there's a why behind things, that, you know, it's like your, like the deep longings of your heart aren't answered by a pill. They're not answered by some material thing that just sort of like makes you comfortable. Even if you're told, I mean, think about a week's vacation at the beach. Okay, it's great, but by the end, you start to get antsy and you're ready to go back to work, right? I mean, can you think about just being there for the next six months? There are times I'm here and I think, gosh, that'd be nice. But, like, our life isn't just sort of like settled by some materialistic comfort. We need more. And what do we ultimately need? The love of God himself, manifested to us by God incarnate, Jesus Christ, who's given us an ordinary means to receive him in the sacraments. He's given us his love. He's given us his mercy. Even when we continue to fall away from it, he continues to draw us back. And I would put that up against any other uh, teaching, philosophy, uh, thought structure, whatever, out there in the world, and point towards that for the ultimate depth of meaning. Are there people who have marred it and not done a good job of living it out and explaining it? Yeah. And I have not always been very good at living it out and explaining it. But ultimately, I'd say it's worth staking your life on. And, you know, that's what I would recommend to someone going off to college is at least if you're going to consider leaving the church, know what you're leaving first and give it the strongest possible argument before you just walk away from, from this incredible treasure that we've inherited. Yeah, and I challenge people all the time in high school and in college if you're not going to stay Catholic or whatever faith you are, what are you? You can't be nothing, yeah. right? That's the easy road. That's the road that our world tells us to be. Just, you know, that agnostic, that person that just doesn't care. Uh, you use this quote from Fulton J. Sheen, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, the greatest problem in our world today is indifference, right? Just not caring, you know, just saying, God, no God, I'm just going to live my life how I want. If you're going to be, you know, a Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, even going Eastern religious, Hindu, Buddhist, Muslim, be the best one that you can be. Be the kind of person that studies your faith and is able to come up here and do a Q&A on Hinduism and answer whatever questions people throw at you. I mean, and I will definitely come because I would love to learn about Hinduism if you came and sat in this chair for me. I mean, but know what you are, know what you're learning, know what you believe, because I think that's really what's important. Now, I would make the argument, and Father would make the argument as well, when you get down to it, you're going to come home. You're going to come back to the Catholic Church because it is the fulfillment of truth. But whether you do or not, just be and take something of faith into you and believe in something with that true conviction. Um, and I think, I think that, in some ways, is 
more important than as Fulton J. Sheen said, that indifference is having something. So I'm going to correct you on one thing. It wasn't Fulton Sheen. It was Maximilian Colby. He said the greatest. Uh, it's okay. He said the greatest sin of the 20th century is indifference. And actually, we're pulling this from that Jim Caviezel video. And he said, but it seems like it's the 21st century sin as well. Um, and a beautiful quote from Fulton Sheen that I love is, nobody actually hates the Catholic Church. They hate what, the, what they think the Catholic Church is. And that's where I would say, once again, it's like know what you have before you walk away from it. And I think so often um, there's, a, you know, some indifference or some walking away. And the thing is, too, it's like I get it. You know, it's like sometimes I do wish that we had more programs to appeal to this group or that group. But, you know, in some ways it's like, you know, we all have to embrace it and take it on and study it, and don't be afraid to pick up the catechism. Don't be afraid, in fact, don't be afraid to pick up the phone and call your priest. Don't be afraid to do any of these things or, or take that risk to understand more and to know more about your faith. Don't just walk away um, from something that you've never totally, you know, grasped or understood because it really is an amazing gift that we have. Well, Maximilian Colby, Fulton J. Sheen, you can't go they're wrong both great either. men. Apparently, you can go wrong with their quote, but you can't go wrong with how awesome they were in the church life. Um, and last thing that I'll say about the crisis in the church, I think there's two big things that we need to remember. Um, a lot of people saying Mary must be weeping so terribly about what's happening in the church. I think, and many people agree with me, Mary isn't weeping right now. She is sweeping. Yeah. Right? She's cleaning up the mess that we've had for a long time, unfortunately. Behind the scenes, it's just coming to light just like what happens to our sins in confession, right? It's bringing it out in the open so we can fix it, so we can clean it. And the other thing that I would challenge people, you know, our youth today and young adults, they really kind of want to be radical, right? They want to stand out in the crowd. They want to do something different. They want to be unique. Well, Christ was pretty radical in, in his time too when he said, love your enemies. Now, that's just a mantra that we get in the Christian faith in the Catholic Church and in the Bible. Love your enemies, great. But this is probably the best example we've had in a long time now of what that actually means to love your enemies. How do you love the people in, that are doing these terrible things and have done these terrible things and pray for them even more so with more conviction? I mean, that is a hard pill to swallow. So while people are in some ways leaving the church, then you go, well, what happened to that whole loving your enemy thing? I mean, why is your enemy all of a sudden becoming the one that's making you lose your faith. It should, in some ways, if we're following Christ, give you a stronger faith in that love in his words. So I think, actually, if we followed what Christ said in his words, it's a much harder pill to swallow than sometimes we realize. And I think this is a really good example right now in our own life. Mm -hmm. so. Um, so that wraps up what the questions that we have. Um, so thank you all for being here. Thank you for everyone who tuned in on Facebook Live. We appreciate it. Um, we'll probably do another one of these in a couple months. Um, we really just enjoy doing this. I mean, Father and I talk in his office all the time. We have almost two-hour conversations anyway. each week. Yeah, because we get together uh, once a week, well, usually twice a week, one on Monday to go over the homily from the past Sunday, and Michael tells me what I did wrong. And then Sometimes. Um, on like Thursday, Friday, we start talking about the homily for the upcoming week. 
and try to get things underway. So it's it's been good, and um, we strive to work at that and to have this you know opportunity. And you know I think you know anytime you want to submit a question, anything like this, please do. Uh, and it's nice to be able to do it in kind of a broad sort of a way like this, so we can have a record. And if anybody you know has questions or anything they want to know about or get our opinion on, so to speak, happy to give it. So it's nice, and plus we get a few snacks out of it. So it's, it's a good yeah. Thing. And we both have emails. I mean, Facebook is there. Throw out a message to us. I mean, that's private. Um, throwing out comments on things. I mean, there are so many ways nowadays to get a hold of people. And we try to be as accessible as possible. Um, so please, if you have questions even in between these uh, Q&As that we have, throw those questions out there. I'll compile and make a list. We'll be ready for the next one. Um, and we just like to give you a glimpse in what we talk about a lot. Because actually, half of these questions, we probably have had conversations about just privately on our own level. So we're glad to invite you all into the conversations that Father and I have on a regular basis in his office. Um, and we want to keep inviting you into that conversation and keep giving us questions and keep um, continuing to come to church, come to Mass, and um, keep growing in your faith. So, uh, Father, why don't you close out with a prayer? You got it. And I would just say the one other, one final thing, I think, with the, because uh, I just keep going around in my mind with the crisis in the church. I think the other big thing, and this is a good example of this, it's like, to focus on our own circle of influence, you know? It's like you can feel helpless with a lot of this stuff, but ultimately, it's like, hey, here on the parish level, you know, we do what we can do. We keep going. We keep offering the sacraments. We keep coming together. We keep supporting one another. We keep Christ at the heart of it all. Because what's the best thing I think we can do in the midst of crisis? To keep striving by the grace of God to become saints. We've got what we need to do that. Let's keep doing it and, you know, be the people God is calling us to be. So let's close with the help of our blessed mothers. We pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hail Mary. Full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Most sacred heart of Jesus. Have mercy on us. Immaculate heart of Mary. Pray for us. Saint Stanislaus. Pray for us. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. And Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. And just for you viewers at home, that blessing came to you as well. <laughs> That's the great part about prayer. They can go beyond space and time. Facebook so. Live. Hooray. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, guys.